When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblang, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned No Mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. Now, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man, and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for fifteen shekels of silver, and a homer, and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore, or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Jake Garrett, and uh, I used to uh, be a part of this church way back when it was the Journey Metro East, still a campus of the Journey. I used to lead worship here uh, many, many years ago. And uh, Pastor Steve is out of town today, and apparently like 12 other more qualified leaders are out of town today. And so uh, they said, hey, are you going to be around? I said, yeah. And they said, well, we don't have anybody else. Would you mind stepping in and preaching? I said, I'd love to. Um, so we're, uh, we're going to be looking at the book of Hosea today. Um, it's, a, it's a difficult scripture. And so if you haven't noticed already, the language is a bit intense. So if you still have some kids that aren't in Trailhead Kids, you might consider sending them. Just a fair warning. So we're looking at this book of Hosea. And uh, it's, it's actually a really complicated book. There's lots of layers going on here. Um, there, there's, there's you know, a very personal layer, and then there's a, a layer between God and Israel. And then there, so I, I want us to get first an idea of the, the foundational uh, layers of this book before we start moving into the actual scripture, because we're going to go back and forth between them. So first off, this is a, a story about a real man and a real woman and their relationship, a man named Hosea, a woman named Gomer. That's the part that we just read. So uh, it's about their marriage, and uh, it's about unfaithfulness. It's about adultery. So that's, that's part of what this book is about. Now, the next layer is that this is a book about God and Israel, his people, his nation that he had chosen for himself, the Israelite people. He says, I'm going to take this story of, of Hosea and Gomer and their relationship, and that's going to be a picture of what my relationship with Israel is like right now. And so we've got that whole layer going on. But then even more than that, 
This is a story about God and all of humanity. This is a story about God and us. This is about not just uh, Hosea and Gomer and the adultery and the unfaithfulness there, not just Israel and their unfaithfulness to God. This is about us and our unfaithfulness to God. So those are kind of the layers of what's going on in this book. We'll be going back and forth between them as we continue. So Hosea starts out with, with this prophet named Hosea, and the Lord comes to him and he says, all right, Hosea, here's the deal. I'm going to show my people Israel what it's like to be their God right now. So I'm going to do that through you. What I want you to do is to, the words are, take a wife of whoredom. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that this woman, Gomer, was a prostitute before Hosea married her. It doesn't really say that specifically. What it does mean uh, is that she is going to be unfaithful to him. She is going to sell herself into prostitution. And the Lord is telling Hosea this before they even get married. He's like, you're going to take a wife. She's going to cheat on you, and she's going to leave you and be a prostitute. He's letting them know right up front. And so most of us, I think, if we get to our wedding day and the Lord says, hey, before you uh, commit to this thing, I want you to know real quick, uh, your spouse is going to leave you and become a prostitute. Are we going to go through with that marriage? I probably would not. I'd say, all right, I might take my chances elsewhere. But that's not what Hosea does. The Lord tells him, you're going to have a cheating wife, and he marries her, makes her his wife. And so then uh, she has a son. It says uh, that she bore Hosea a son. So we know this is Hosea's kid. And the Lord says, all right, I want you to name this kid Jezreel. Now, Jezreel is a place where Israel had sinned against the Lord, and the Lord is saying, all right, I want you to name this kid Jezreel because this is a sign to Israel that judgment's coming. I remember how they sinned against me, and there's going to be consequences. So this is just a foreshadowing. So name your kid Jezreel. So that happens, then uh, Gomer bears another child. This time, it does not say necessarily that it was Hosea's kid. It just kind of leaves that part out, so we're not quite sure. And the Lord says, all right, this is a daughter. I want you to name her No Mercy, which is a wonderful name, parents. That will, uh, that will get your kid far on the playground. Um, so he's saying, listen, I have been patient with Israel. I have been merciful. I have been kind. But they keep leaving me. They keep sinning against me. And my mercy is no more. It's time for, I'm going to deal with this. This kind of unfaithfulness does not go on forever. We deal with it now. And so then Gomer bears another child. This one is, the Lord says, I want you to name it, not my people. So I think we can be pretty uh, pretty certain that this one's not Hosea's because the Lord's like, I want you to name this one, not mine. Um, so we've got this, this third son and, and the Lord is saying to Israel, you are not my people now. You have left me time and time again. So finally, I'm just going to say, fine, you want it your way, you have it your way. You don't want to be my people, fine. You're not my people anymore. So this is, this is the story of Hosea and Gomer and the Lord is using it to send a message to Israel. And then finally, we see it in a later scripture uh, that Gomer has sold herself into slavery. She has uh, sold herself into prostitution. She sold herself to someone who's pimping her out. And so that's where we kind of leave the story off. It's kind of a heavy story. It's kind of sad um, and difficult. But that's, that's the story that the Lord's given us by which to understand uh, his relationship with Israel and his relationship with us. Now, this is, the book of Hosea is, is in essence a story about unfaithfulness. And so we all, I think, on some level know what it's like to have to deal with this, right? Maybe you have had a spouse or a long-time relationship where there has been unfaithfulness. Many of you have a family member that has dealt with unfaithfulness in in a marriage or a long-term relationship. But at the very least, you know what it's like for someone to turn their back on you, right? 
Like you kind of know what that's like. You know how that feels. I remember when I was in, in high school, I was a freshman, and so I couldn't drive yet, but one of my best friends could. And uh, so whenever the weekend came around, I called this guy uh, because he was going to make things happen with, you know, he had a car so we could go places. So, you know, Friday comes around one time and I call him up. I'm like, all right, dude, what are we doing tonight? What's happening? And uh, he says, hey, just, just a minute. I'll be right back. And so he leaves uh, and goes into the other room. And I, I'm pretty sure he thought that I couldn't hear him, uh, but I could. And so I hear him uh, talking to someone. He says, hey, Jake is on the phone, wants to know uh, what we're doing, but there's these other people I really want to hang out with. I don't know what to tell him. And so he comes back a couple minutes later, and he's like, hey, dude, I got a, uh, I've got a family thing. Uh, I just talked to my parents, so I'm going to be hanging with them tonight. And, you know, I'm trying to play it cool. So I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's cool, man. I, I understand. I get it. Yeah, yeah, have, have fun with your family. And so I hang up the phone, and, and I'm walking back to my room in my parents' house, and I, the Charlie Brown music is playing. And I just feel heavy in my heart, you know? I, the, the feel of dejection, the sting of uh, having someone turn their back on you, it hurts. And I get back to my room, and I had, these, uh, I had this case, this glass case, and I had these pet hermit crabs in there. And so I, I remember picking up this hermit crab and looking at it and thinking, my only friends in the entire world are hermit crabs. I'm throwing a pity party. And, but by the very nature of their name, it means they would probably rather be alone. It is a sad place to be. But we know that. We know loneliness, right? We know what that feels like. It hurts. It's heavy. It feels isolated. So that's what the Lord is trying to convey to us here. He's saying, you know what rejection is. I'm trying to show you in graphic detail what it feels like for you to leave me. I want you to see what it feels like for you to turn your back on me, your loving God. So that's what he's showing us throughout this book. And, and more specifically, like I said, this is about God and Israel. And so God is, is giving this book not just about unfaithfulness, but specifically about idolatry. So Israel had been uh, in a turbulent time politically, and lots of foreign lands were coming in and taking over and leaving and immigrating. And so actually at this point, Israel's even split up into two kingdoms. So one of the peoples that had come into Israel had brought this God named Baal. And Baal took off in Israel. And so people all over the place were worshiping Baal. And uh, in fact, they started merging uh, their worship of Baal with their worship of the Lord. It was prevalent. It was pervasive. Everyone was worshiping Baal. And the Lord sees this and he is unhappy, obviously. He is hurt as a rejected person would be. He's angry that they would reject him. And so he's giving this book as a sign of what he is doing to deal with idolatry, how it feels for him to have to deal with Israel's idolatry. And I also said, remember, that this is a story about God and us, our relationship with God. This is about not just Israel's idolatry. This is about our idolatry, our unfaithfulness. So some of you probably know this language of modern idolatry. You've heard it before. Some of you probably haven't. And you're thinking to yourself maybe right now, idol worship, huh? I'm pretty sure I don't have a little statue in my basement that I've been praying to and cutting goats up in front of. I think I'm all right on this idol worship thing. I don't think that's something that deals with me. That is something ancient people used to do because they were foolish and they didn't know any better. I am a member of Western civilization. I am educated. This does not pertain to me. But I would suggest that no, not only are you an idol worshiper, but you worship the exact same gods that the Israelites worshiped. You are no different. The only difference is 
they would take their gods and they would personify them. They'd give them a name like Baal. You just don't give your gods a name like they did. So good for you. The only way you're better is that you're better at deceiving yourself. Congratulations. So let me show you what I mean. The Israelites were worshiping this God named Baal. And, and, and worship, by the way, doesn't necessarily mean just like praying to something or sacrificing to something. It means that you're trusting it. You're giving your life to it. You're saying, this thing will give me the security, the satisfaction, the comfort that I need. When you trust your life to anything in that way, that is worshiping it and that is making it a God. And so the Israelites, uh, they were worshiping Baal. Baal was the God of fertility and agriculture and uh, growing things, right? So... In ancient Israel, uh, when you have an agricultural society, how do you measure wealth? You measure wealth by how much livestock you have. You measure wealth by how much grain is in your storehouse, how much land you have. And so it makes sense that if they loved wealth, if they trusted wealth, if they wanted to be a wealthy people, they would pray to Baal because he was the one that controlled the rains, controlled fertility. He's the one that could give them their bumper crop that would make them rich, right? So it makes sense that the Israelites would pray to Baal. But is wealth your God, perhaps? Have you made an idol out of wealth? Some of you think about money a lot, right? You think that wealth makes you important, that people should respect you if you have money, or at least should respect you if you have the the right stuff that money can buy, right? In essence, you believe that wealth and possessions will satisfy your soul. And, And wealth could be your God even if you don't have any money. If you think to yourself often, man, things would just be, it would, everything would be all right, if I just had a little bit more money in the bank. If you, if you think to yourself that money is going to cure your problems, that you don't feel secure unless you have a certain number in your bank account, you have turned wealth into an idol. You have turned wealth into a God. You are trusting it in the way that only a God can be trusted. Does that make sense? So you are worshiping the exact same God that the Israelites were worshiping, this God of wealth. Well, in Hosea 4.12, the Lord says, My people inquire of a piece of wood. And their walking staff gives them oracles, for a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. So what the Israelites would do, they, would, uh, they had these, these staffs with these priests, and they would ask questions to Baal, and he would give them guidance and wisdom and knowledge so that they would know what to do. And some of you, knowledge and wisdom is your God in the same way it was theirs. Some of you derive your meaning from being the smartest person in the room from being, say, the best person in your field. You, wanna, you want that respect. You think that makes you feel like somebody. You think that satisfies you. If you can feel like somebody because of how smart you are, of how accomplished you are, you've read all the latest articles, you have the most well-articulated opinions, people should respect you because of that, you think. And maybe it's not even just book smarts. Maybe it's cultural intelligence. You know the coolest bands, the hippest fashions, the best places to hang out, the trendiest restaurants. You know things that other people don't, and so that gives you value in a conversation. That makes you feel like somebody. Your acts of worship for your God of cultural knowledge are chasing the newest and greatest, and your reward is a sense of pretentious superiority that you expect to satisfy you. That's idolatry. That is looking for meaning and worth and value in something other than God. That is is idol worship. And by the way, that happens to be something that I worship often. Let's keep going. Hosea 4.14. 
He says, I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes, and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Now, once again, Baal was the fertility god, and uh, that means not just agriculture, that means making babies. And so part of their worship is that men would go to this temple, and there would be prostitutes at the temple, and they would pay the prostitutes, and then they would have sex with them as an act of worship. And so for some of you, sex is your idol. And maybe not just necessarily sex, but what sex represents, you know? So like some people go to sex as a form of comfort because when things get really hard, when you're stressed out, when life is difficult, you need something to help you cope. And so perhaps it's sex, it's pornography, it's food, it's drink, it is entertainment. You need something to comfort your soul. And you're not trusting God to do it, you're trusting something else to do it, a created thing that's idolatry. Or maybe to you, sex is a power thing. Sex is a, a, a notch on your belt. It is the fact that you have won someone over. You have won their trust. You have won the ability to use their body. It's, it's a power thing for you. You're a conqueror. And that is idolatry. That is trying to get a sense of value from a creative thing. Maybe it's a sense of intimacy. Sex, in that brief moment, you mean something to someone else. And you lay yourself out vulnerable, and they take you as you are. And in that intimate moment, you are approved of. And that is what you deeply long for in your soul. But you don't go to God for that sense of approval, that sense of meaning. You go to sex. Is that your God? Keep going. Hosea 4.13. says, They sacrifice on the tops of mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is good. Therefore your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery. So they would worship on top of mountains and under trees because trees are a sign of fertility, right? Trees are a sign that growing is happening. And so they would worship under these trees um, and they would, uh, it was a lot of, once again, sexual practices. And so this was about family. This was the fact that Children were a blessing in this ancient culture because if you have more children, then you have greater protection for your family and you have more hands in the field so you can acquire more wealth, right? Children really mean something monetarily. And so they wanted more children. And so they were worshiping to get more children. Some of you have turned family into an idol and you think to yourself, you know, family's such a good thing, right? Shouldn't we be focusing on the family? Um, we, we, family's such a, a, a wholesome thing, but... Family's not a good thing once you take it as a good thing and elevate it to the ultimate thing. Once you take this gift of God and turn it into a God in and of itself, it turns into a very bad God. Because you'll do either two things. You'll either turn your family into a God or you'll use them as tools to get to the God you really want to get to. So if you turn your family into a God, what you do is, is uh, your children have to be dressed to the nines all the time and, and you have to give them whatever they want whatever kind of food they ask for, when, whatever your spouse likes, that's what you'll do. You are there to serve your family. And if they don't approve of your service of them for even a moment, it crushes you because you have based your sense of meaning in life upon their happiness. So when, if they're ever unsatisfied, it crushes you. But think about this. It not only crushes you, you are crushing them at the same time because people were never meant to be God's. And so when you put the pressures on your family of being the gods that own your own sense of satisfaction, that they're not meant for that pressure. It crushes them too. Family is a terrible God. 
Or maybe you're using family as a tool to get to the gods you really want. What you really want is for people to see your ideal family, to respect you and admire you and think that you're great. And so you flip out if your kid acts like a brat because it makes you look bad. Or you flip out if your spouse says something inappropriate at a party, right? Because what you're trying to do is preserve this ideal image so that people will think well of you. And that's what gives you a sense of meaning and identity and worth. That's idolatry. And speaking of people approving of you, Hosea 7.14, it says, They don't cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine, they gash themselves. They rebel against me. So we know from other parts of the scripture that part of worshiping Baal, one of the rituals, is that the priests would get up in the temple and they would cut themselves. And if, uh, if they cut themselves, then the god Baal would see that and he would pay attention because they were serious about him and then he would approve of them and then he would hear their prayers. So some of you, uh, the approval of a certain group, a certain person, that's actually your God. That's what you're, you're thinking will give you ultimate satisfaction in life. If someone loves me, if this particular group accepts me, if my parents approve of me, then I will be okay. That's approval as an I, that you've turned that into a God. And some people will do exactly what the Baal priests were doing. I remember John Piper, a pastor in Minneapolis, telling a story. He uh, went to visit a girl who was a cutter in, uh, in the hospital. And he, he just straight up asked her, why do you do it? And she answered him, you know, when I cut, they'll bring me to the hospital. And when I come to the hospital, uh, nurses and doctors will talk to me and will touch me. And no one else will do that. No one else wants to talk to me. No one else wants to hug me. That's why I do it. Just... People will go to the greatest pains to get even the slightest modicum of approval. This is us. This is idolatry. This is looking to created things to satisfy our souls. Do you understand? These are acts of worship for idolatrous gods. Have I got you yet? Anyone feel like they're not touched by idolatry yet? It's been a long, cliched piece of advice that uh, you should follow your heart, right? If you watch reality TV for 30 seconds, you will see some candid interview where some contestant's like, man, I just didn't know what to do. But then I was like, man, you just need to follow your heart. That's what I did and it all worked out. What people don't understand is we are always following our hearts. We can't help but follow our hearts. We can't stop following our hearts. Whatever we think will give us the most joy and satisfaction, we will do every time. Now, maybe not, we might not do what gives us the most instant satisfaction and joy, but we will always do what we think will give us the most satisfaction and joy. Deep in our hearts. We are following our hearts, but the problem is our hearts are wayward. They are foolish. They are always misleading us. They do not know what is best for us, and yet we continue to follow them down wrong paths. And here's the other trick. Most of us, if not all of us, have said at one point or another, we we get that it's not working, right? We're like, we have followed our heart. We have tried these things. I still feel unsatisfied in my life. I need to return to the Lord and I can fix this, all right? You think to yourself, I will fix this problem. And so did the Israelites. Their rain had stopped. The Lord had stopped letting their agriculture grow. They figured it out that Baal wasn't doing it for them. And so at one point during the book of Hosea, they come back to the Lord and uh, they say to themselves, all right, here's what we need to do. We need to return to the Lord and we need to perform all the sacrifices we used to do. And we need to give him some offerings and then he'll be all right with us again. Rain will resume. We'll get our wine back. 
We'll get our grain back. Everything will be all right. And here's what it says in, in Hosea 3, verses 1 through 3, or excuse me, Hosea 6, uh, verses 4 through 6. He says, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I've slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So do you see what's happening here? The Israelites were were coming back to the Lord. They were sacrificing. They were making offerings, but the Lord doesn't take it. Why? Because think about it. What did they want when they were making those sacrifices and offerings? Did they want the Lord? No, they wanted the stuff he could give them. What they were really interested in was getting their wine back and getting their grain back. And they thought that if they did the sacrifices and offerings prescribed by the Bible, that God would be bound to bless them, that he would be required to do what they wanted. So friends, is that you today? Do you come to church? Are you trying to be a good person? Are you in a community group taking part in a nonprofit? having the best intentions? Are you trying to be a good person so that God will be forced to give you a good life? Do you think that by your actions, your rituals, that God will be duty-bound to bless you? Because that's obviously not the case. What does he say to the Israelites when they try to do that? He says, I don't want your sacrifices. I want you to love me. I don't want your offerings. I want you to know me. I want a relationship with you. And anything less than that is still worshiping created things. That's what you're really after. It's still idolatry. So friends, if your spiritual lives are anything less than passionately loving, pursuing, serving, knowing God, then you're still just an idolater. You've switched one idolatry for another. So you're starting to get the picture? You're starting to feel hopeless yet? It feels like we cannot help but whore ourselves out to these idols. We cannot help but leave God for these lesser lovers. And when we try to fix the problem, all we do is dig ourselves deeper. It feels hopeless. Friends, we have walked away from God. We have called out to idols. We have undressed and laid ourselves out bare on their altars so that they can use us and abuse us in the hopes that we will find some small measure of satisfaction in the scraps they leave us. That's where we're at. We're in a very bad way. But thank God that is not the end of the story. In Hosea 3, Verses 1 through 3, you can turn there. This is the Lord talking to Hosea. He says, The Lord said to me, Go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine. For many days you shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so will I also be to you. Do you see this? Gomer has been unfaithful to Hosea. She has borne children that are not his. She has gone off and sold herself into slavery and prostitution. And what does Hosea do? Does he throw himself a pity party? No. 
Does he sit there and hope at home that she will return someday? No. Does he, does he get angry and say, good riddance? No. He gets up like a man and he goes and he takes her back. And that is what the Lord has done for us. The Lord has seen us go off to our idols to whore ourselves after other gods. And he has not felt sorry for himself. He has not hoped helplessly that we would return to him someday. He has pursued us. He has actively worked and is actively working to take you back. And friends, Gomer was not just a slave to this other lover. Even if he buys her back, legally she deserves to die. The punishment in that day for a woman who committed adultery was a sure death sentence. And in fact, Jose would be ridiculed if he didn't send her to the death sentence. But Hosea doesn't give her what she deserves. Hosea, it turns out, loved her. And he paid the price to buy her out of her slavery. And not just that, but he made her his wife again. He didn't try to, to shame her. He definitely didn't take her to the death penalty. He makes her his wife again and gives her the dignity and honor of a bride. And friends, just like Hosea, God has not given us what we deserve. But he bought us out of slavery. We have voluntarily enslaved ourselves to these idols, enslaved ourselves to sin. We have trusted them with our lives. We have given ourselves completely over to them. But God buys us back. And the cost for us was much more than 15 shekels of silver and some barley. Now, someone had to die because it says, just like Gomer, who was sentenced to die for her adultery, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. We deserve to die just like she did. But the Lord pays the pricely cost in Jesus. Jesus paid the cost to free us from our idols, to save us from our slavery. Friends, don't you see, Jesus was betrayed by his family. Jesus, when he was hung up on a cross, his father turned his face away. His father that he knew and loved so intimately turned his face away and he, he cried out, God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was beaten to a bloody pulp. And friends, just as we have undressed ourselves and laid ourselves out on the altar of our idols, Jesus takes our place. Jesus was undressed and laid out bare on a cross. And he was used and abused physically, emotionally, spiritually, so that we would not have to be ever again. So that we could be free. And now instead of being naked and ashamed before our idols, we find ourselves naked before the living God. And instead of using us and abusing us like our idols do, our God picks us up in compassion and tenderness and clothes us again in the blood-stained robes of his own son's righteousness. He gives us the dignity and the honor that Jesus earned, just like Hosea gave Gomer the dignity and honor of being his wife again. Though we do not deserve it in any way, God has bound his heart up in us. He has loved us. He has bought us. He has married himself to us so that he can bless us forever, so that he can give us himself, which is the greatest gift he can give us. And in his faithfulness, while we were unfaithful, he's actually changing our hearts. 
You remember, our hearts keep leading us astray. We never know where to go. Our hearts keep causing us to, to go and chase after other gods, but he is changing our hearts by his love and his faithfulness. See, he's showing us how trustworthy he is. He's showing us how loving he is. He's taking we who could not help but whore ourselves out to idols, and he is turning us into a people who sees that he is better, and now we want to remain faithful to him because we see it now, finally. In the scripture, it says that Gomer was really proud of her wages as a prostitute that she was very proud of the fact that they would give her vines and figs. But later on, the Lord is saying about how he wants to bless Israel, that he wants to give them entire vineyards. He wants to give them a, a valley of hope. Friends, that is what the Lord starts to show us that makes us want to be faithful to him. Our idols give us a vine. The Lord wants to give us an entire vineyard. Our idols give us a fig. The Lord wants to give us an entire valley. He is better. And the more that we know and we taste and we see that the Lord is good, that Christ in his mercy has loved us, the more we understand that, the more we hear the siren song of our idols and the volume decreases. The more we know God, the less we want to leave and go to idols. One of my favorite hymns puts it this way. It says, What can strip the seeming beauty of the idols of the earth? Not a sense of right or duty, but the sight of peerless worth. Tis the look that melted Peter. Tis the face that Stephen saw. Tis the heart that wept with Mary can alone from idols draw. We have to know Christ in order for our hearts to change. But once we do, they will change. And we will become brides fit for the King of Kings. Friends, his goodness and his grace has pursued us from the foundations of the earth. It is changing us here and now, and it will change us into creatures fit for eternity, where he will bless us forever, and we will know him and love him forever. And here's how the Lord describes it in chapter 2 of Hosea. He says, I want you to hear this, I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice in steadfast love and in mercy, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Friends, he is offering you peace and safety and blessing and joy and value and satisfaction forever. That's what the Lord is offering. So the question today, when he pays the cost and calls you out of your slavery, calls you away from your lesser lovers, will you respond? Will you repent? In chapter 2 of Hosea, uh, he's talking to his son and, and, and he's saying, I want you to go to your mother and plead with her. Just plead with your mother to return. So that's what I want to do with you right now. I'm pleading. Please think about your life. Think about what you're trusting your life to. Think about where your satisfaction and your joy comes from and ask the Lord to show you. Are, are you better, Lord? Will Will you, in fact, buy me out of this slavery and make me yours forever? Ask him, please, return to the Lord today. He's better. I'm telling you now. So, friends, we're going to put some reflection questions up on the screen. We're going to take some time to pray through these. If you need to pray with anybody, we'll have leaders in the back of the room that you can pray with. And after we take some time to pray through these questions, we'll, we'll take an offering where we can give our resources to the work of the, of the Lord. And then later on, we'll take communion together as a family. But right now, let me pray for us, and then uh, we can ask the Lord to show us his goodness, his kindness, his character.
Lord, we're thankful. We have not deserved you. We have not deserved what you give us. And yet, while we were unfaithful, you have pursued us. And you offer us every good and perfect thing. Lord, help us. Our hearts are prone to wander. So will you show us that you're better? So that we'll understand that we will, we will stay connected to you, our source of joy, our source of satisfaction, our source of blessing. Help us. Change our hearts, Lord. And we ask this humbly in Jesus' name. Amen.